And welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is episode number 497. Mike, you ready for this one? Yeah, I'm so ready. I forgot my glasses. Are you going to need them? No. <laughs> See, I, I, I have glasses, but I hardly ever wear them. Um, they do help uh, when I'm looking at, when I'm sitting in church and I'm trying to look up at the screen or, you know, the pastor's got something up on the screen or uh, something from a distance. They do help me, but I just, I'm not used to wearing them. And at work, it's very difficult for me to try to wear them because it's just, I'm not used to it. And my peripheral vision and mm. I'm just not yeah. used to it. And so it, it, it throws me off. But uh, I know that at some point here with all the blue lights and things with the computer screens and phones, and I know that's not good for your eyes. And that's probably strains on my eyes as well. So I might have to uh, get used to them and wear get them the more tent. permanently. Yellow tint. Get the yellow tinted ones for the podcast. It can be our little thing. So we yeah. wear yellow tinted glasses on the podcast. Yeah. Well, tonight we've got a a good program lined up for you tonight. We're going to have a conversation with an Anglican. That's, that's the only name I could come up with, uh, for the, for tonight's program. I wanted to come up with something catchy, uh, put it out there, but, um, I mean, that pretty much explains what we're going to be doing here on the program tonight. It's episode number 497. We are just three episodes away from our 500th episode. You're going to want to tune in for that. We're going to have, uh, we're going to be talking about Galatians two twenty along with some, some memorable moments from the past 500 episodes of G220 Radio. Some some things maybe that we didn't didn't care for per per se. Things that didn't go as planned, or maybe some guests that we've had on. Uh, we've had some guests on that have apostatized the faith. They we've had some Christian rappers on who were Christian, strong Christian rappers, and then they are no longer claiming to be Christians anymore. And so uh, we've had some others do that as well. And and it's it's a sad thing to see. Um, but those things have happened. And so we're going to talk about some of those ups and downs, the highs and lows of G220 radio, 500 episodes, 500, man, this is a long way since we began on blog talk radio. Yeah. Mike was, when you came in with, um, tongue waggers, was that still yeah. on blog talk? That was still on blog talk. Yeah, it was still on blog top. In fact, that's how we started going to Google meets to record live and that's how i snuck my way into g220 radio yeah yeah mike worked his way into the team here <laughs> no but he's a valuable valuable asset to uh, g220 radio um mike with his mdiv so he can theologically set us straight <laughs> yep, when we right need there. it yeah it's somewhere right. back in that corner yeah yeah it's back there somewhere but um we're going to have a conversation here with an Anglican. This is our, our guest here. Let's bring him on. Uh, John Agabosim. Uh, hopefully I said that right. Uh, yes. I know how. Well, well, John and I met a couple Thursdays ago, maybe I don't know, a month or so, maybe maybe a little less. But it was um, I was downtown in Illyria passing out gospel tracks. And one of the, the things that doesn't happen often is somebody says, thanks for what you're doing or kind of encourages you for sharing the gospel. Well, John did that and it, it sparked a conversation. I think we went for maybe like 20 to 30 minutes, just having a, you know, a good gracious conversation back and forth. We weren't arguing with each other. He's an Anglican. I'm a reformed Baptist, but we were talking about some of the things we agree upon and some of the things we didn't agree upon. Um, and just had a, a good conversation. Uh, John, is that the same, same, uh, recollection that you have or <laughs> I hope. Yeah, definitely. It was a very good conversation. It was great to meet you, and I thank you for inviting me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on the program. I, I think I, before the program, I was telling you that there's only a couple Anglicans that I know. Uh, and uh, as far as what I know about the history of Anglicanism, it was very, you know, after after the, the Reformation, and you can correct me if you think I'm, if I'm wrong on this. Mike, you can correct me because you, you know more church history than I do. Um, Anglicanism does come from the Reformation, but Anglican Church kind of was more of a yes, we're not Roman Catholic, but we're 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 Protestant as well. But we also hold to some of the the more uh, traditional things that the Roman Catholicism held to. It's kind of like a like an in between, so to speak, from the the 
the reformers that were, you know, Calvin, the Presbyterians that come from that, uh, and Luther and the Lutherans that, that eventually come from that, um, but more of a, a in-between Roman Catholicism and the other Protestant, you know, denominations. Yeah. Would that be correct? Like the, the via media, the middle way. I think we lost. Uh... Yeah, I think I see he's trying to figure out maybe to curse to pre-curse it. The Anglican Church, in a sense, started before the Reformation. When um, King Edward VIII wanted to divorce his first wife. And he couldn't. So he created his own denomination oh, okay. in the Anglican. Not to say like that was all of it. He was King Edward was very theological, studied theology. He knew theology. So it wasn't just this like, oh, I want to divorce my my wife. The church won't let me, so I'm gonna start my own church. Um he was so he was very knowledgeable of theology. But that's kind of how you can say it kind of starts. Mm. And then with Kramer, you start seeing the introduction of reformed thought coming from the continental, mostly from Geneva and Calvinism and Martin Butza. A um, little bit of Lutheranism would be in there, but it's primarily from Geneva and that's then now you're having the battles that brings the battles with are the 39 articles and Catholicism and the church kind of bouncing back and forth kind of between these theology until the, um, I forgot it's, um, the proclamation that kind of ends it all. Yeah. All right. Let's see, uh, John, let's see if your, your audio is up with us here. No, we don't. We don't have you on audio. Um, well, no, we don't have you. Maybe if you go out and come back in. <clears throat> so, um, trying to think of anything to say. So yeah, um, we <laughs> yeah we gotta call keep them. It, gotta yeah. keep it. So. To kind of define, and uh, John can correct me if I'm wrong. So, in America, what we call Anglican isn't necessarily the same as Anglican in the COE or the Church of England. We would call kind of those, the Church of England Anglicans are called Episcopalians. That's the predominantly and closest chain. In recent years, within the last 10 years, if not just a little bit longer, um, the conservative Episcopalians have kind of left the church and started kind of Anglicanism in America following the bishop in South Africa, if I remember right. It's an African bishop who is more conservative um, and still part of the broader Anglican community um, with the Bishop of Canterbury as the head. Hmm. Hey, John, we're not getting your audio. Why don't you you go out, like click off the screen, and then click back on that link that I sent you, and come back in, and let's see if that if that does something. Hopefully so, that'll that'll work there because yeah. uh, we definitely want. Uh, want to have him on and have this conversation technical difficulties can happen uh, and we're just kind of going to roll with the punches there while we're rolling with the punches let me tell you if you go to www.g220ministries.com again it's g220ministries.com uh, we're trying to do some work on the website there you can see what's going on and you can also scroll down to the bottom and you're able to uh support us there's different ways you can do that different ways that you can support g220 radio let's see if we've got john back with us john can you hear me? Yes, we can yes. hear you. Perfect. Great. So I don't know if, if while we was having some of those technical difficulties there, if you was hearing what Mike was saying about um, here in America, Mike, you was want to go ahead and 
repeat some of that, what you're saying here in America, we would say the, the Anglican Church was the Episcopal Church, and then within the last 10 years, you were saying um, that's when there's been a move of more conservative Episcopalians that started to yeah. go and, and make themselves, or come back to an Anglican uh, tradition. They, they started to call themselves Anglicans. So in America, uh, it's kind of confusing that the Church of England in America is called the Episcop the Episcopalians. Um, the conservative ones in the last 10, 15 years have kind of moved and are calling themselves Anglican. They're still related. It's just, do you kind of follow the more progressive Bishop of Canterbury? Or are you following the Bishop out of, I think it's South Africa. Um, I know it's in Africa. It's a, the conservative Bishop in Africa. And those are kind of your main two. There's probably offshoots off of that also yeah so i guess it would be good to i can discuss like the general history which i know you were touching on a bit before um i think you said it was edward the eighth that split it was actually it's henry. henry the eighth yeah. yeah um but there's a common like misconception that the reason that he split was because of his divorce which is a bit it's a bit more nuanced than that so basically in the early church uh Christianity first reached England in around the third to fourth century. And England has always had like their own sort of distinct expression and tradition of Christianity, similar to how like in Ethiopia, like Ethiopian Christians have like a traditional yet distinct sort of expression of that. And that's always been around in England and it persisted all the way up until the Reformation. And King Henry VIII was actually a very staunch Catholic. And when Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses, Henry VIII was actually able to make a rebuttal to every single one of those theses. So the issue of the split from the Anglican or from the Roman Catholic Church wasn't mostly on theology. It was rather on sort of authority, church authority. And that comes into the divorce thing. So what had happened was King Henry VIII's brother was previously married to Catherine of Spain, right? And they was it was sort of like a political tie. And... When King Henry VIII's brother died, King Henry inherited the uh, the throne, and he also wanted to preserve that marriage to Catherine so that they could have that nice alliance with Spain. But he was worried because he didn't want to, you know, marry his brother's wife. So he contacted the Pope, who he was good friends with, you know, as a faithful Catholic, and the Pope gave him a dispensation, which basically in Catholicism is sort of like a I don't know, like an exception or like a allowance to do something that normally would not be permitted. So with that dispensation, King Henry VIII was allowed to marry Catherine and everything was going well, except King Henry VIII was always plagued by these scruples of like, you know, I've done something wrong and like, you know, I've done a sin in God's eyes. And especially like reading Leviticus, he saw about how if you marry your brother's wife, like you'll be cursed and your children will be cursed, right? And those sort of scruples were only made worse when him and Catherine could not have children, like no matter what they tried. And of course, as King, he would want a child, especially a male heir to take over. And they could never have one until finally they do have a child, but it's a daughter, right? And one of his advisors tells him that the Leviticus verse is actually mistranslated and that it's not saying that your curse will be childlessness, but rather it'll be specifically lack of a son. And him having a daughter with his wife only further, you know, makes him even more nervous. So at this point, he's like genuinely worried that he's offended God and he's concerned not just for his political ties to have an heir to take over the throne, but also that he's done evil in God's sight. And he's writing desperately to the Pope. And what he's asking for is an annulment so that he can get married to someone else that, you know, he can then have an heir with and also feel that it's not like, you know, an evil marriage. And the Pope doesn't allow it. And most historians believe that the reason the Pope didn't allow it is not because of any specific moral reservations to it, but rather because at that time, the Papal States were at war with France and Spain was a good ally. And he didn't want to risk like, you know, allowing a divorce from the, um, Catherine was the, I believe the niece of the current uh, reign of Spain. So they don't want to risk sort of offending Spain by allowing the divorce with England. And then that would hurt them, the Papal States, in their fight with France. So 
the Pope refused to give that annulment. And eventually, it was two years after um, he first wrote the request for annulment that uh, King Henry VIII eventually just ignored that and ended up getting remarried anyway. But the main split about the Anglican Church was the issue of authority of the Pope specifically, because it was Thomas Cranmer, who was his main advisor, right, who argued that if the Pope issued a dispensation for him to marry Catherine in the first place, right, the dispensation inherently means that there was something unusual or unordinary about that marriage. So then the Pope couldn't then say that he wouldn't give an annulment when he himself admitted in the first place that there was something unordinary about it. So the argument was that the Pope can't allow for something that was against God's will in the first place. So the split from the Anglican Church under King Henry VIII specifically was, again, not for theology, mostly for authority. And the goal of it was to divorce themselves from, well, King Henry VIII literally divorcing, but also a divorce from the Roman Catholic Church. And what happened initially is that King Henry VIII made himself the supreme head of the church, right? And he was like basically the new pope, but of the Anglican Church, right? Then after King Henry VIII comes in, his daughter that he had with uh, Catherine, the original one, Mary Tudor, who became known as Bloody Mary, she was actually a staunch Catholic and she hated everything that her father did and tried to revert England back under Catholic reign. And of course, that led to massive persecution of Anglicans and other Protestants within England, hence why she got the nickname Bloody Mary. But then after that, it was her brother, I believe, Edward the, I'm not sure which number, but it was Edward that came in and basically is the one that oversaw a parliament that made the actual Anglican, you know, formularies, the 39 articles, all that sort of stuff. And that's where you start to see like the actual Anglican, you know, doctrine being fleshed out. And again, we view Anglicanism not as like starting with King Henry VIII, because even in our own faith, like we don't see him as like Supreme Head of the Church. Another change that was made under Edward was that there was no longer Supreme Head of the Church. The monarch of England is not the Supreme Head of the Anglican Church, but rather the Supreme Governor, as in it's believed that they're put in power by God, as is affirmed by Romans, and their job is to help direct the church, but they don't get to, you know, usurp the authority or like make a declaration that is against what God says. They're just sort of put in their position by God to help, you know, lead the church. And that was all fleshed out under Edward. So we don't see like King Henry VIII as like our founder or anything. And we also recognize that he was a very problematic individual with like, you know, divorce and murder and adultery and all sorts of stuff. But also he, under the leadership of Cranmer, recognized something important, which was, you know, the actual principles of the authority of the Pope. So we see it as a sort of restoration of the, or continuation of the traditional Christian faith that was present during the third century in England. And with that comes the American church, the Episcopal church. So the Episcopal church is part of the Anglican communion. So I'm not sure if you're familiar, like within Catholicism, how it's all Catholicism, but there'll be different groups like the Franciscans or the Benedictines or like the Dominicans and stuff, right? But they're all considered Catholic. So that's sort of how it works with the Episcopal Church and the Anglicanism. So there's like a larger Anglican communion and the Episcopal Church is part of that, but they're not like the totality of the Anglican communion. And the reason for that is that when the colonies were founded and when America gained its independence, right, all of the founders, basically the Anglican founders wanted to continue in their faith in America but they didn't want to pledge allegiance to the queen because, you know, that was the whole point of the revolution and stuff. So they actually had to go to Scotland and were laid on hands by the Bishop of Scotland, who gave the Episcopacy to the Americans as they started their new country. And we became known as the Episcopal Church. So the way that it works with the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury is that he's not like a pope he's known as the spiritual head of the church right so like he's not able to make like doctrine that's like binding on the entire Anglican church as a whole like it is in catholicism he just sort of you know will be there as like uh, a guide and will make recommendations and like he'll preside over the various councils that we have the church councils but he can't make like you know declaring statements like you can in catholicism and the same thing with 
the uh, bishops in Africa. So, yeah, like you mentioned, with the Episcopal Church, especially over the past few decades, there have been a very, like, big liberal shift, and a lot of traditional Anglicans did not like that, because when you go that left, right, you lose some of the traditional Christian history, and it's been to the point where even you have, and again, it's not the totality of the, Angl of the Episcopal Church, but with some bishops even pronouncing like straight up heresy, like there have been times that bishops suggested that you don't need to believe that Christ like literally rose from the dead, that you can see it as like a metaphorical thing and you can still like be saved and stuff like mm. that, like stuff that's like actual heresy. So conservative theologians within the Anglican church got so fed up that they eventually split. There have been various smaller splits, but like one of the more bigger ones was the ACNA, which is the Anglican Church of North America that split in 2009. And the way that they were able to continue on with apostolic succession, which is one of the doctrines that Anglicanism professes, that we continue, we believe that all of our bishops have a direct line that you can trace all the way back to the apostles through the laying out of hands. So the way that we were able to continue in that is through Africa. So I believe the first um, ACNA bishops were I think it was the church in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and maybe Tanzania, I want to say. I could be incorrect about Tanzania, but um, Zimbabwe and South Africa have been, you know, very influential um, in the formation of the ACNA and helping retain that apostolic succession. So, yeah, so they continue the Anglican, Anglican way, and we see that as a restoration of the traditional Anglican way in the same way that we saw it as a restoration during the time of the Protestant Reformation. So the history of Anglicanism has always been about trying to find a way to go back to that traditional church teaching. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> what's interesting is John is 19 years old, and uh, this is what kind of drew me into wanting to have this conversation. Now, obviously with Anglicans, Reformed Baptists, we're going to have some disagreements on some theological uh, things there, but just the, the, you don't run into too many. And I say this as a, as a 44 year old man, you don't run into, and I go to college, you don't run into many 19 year old individuals who actually have a desire to know the history of their church, their faith that they, they, uh, claim to follow. Um, you don't have th that type of desire to want to know theology, um, which we'll probably get into some of the, the things of what, what they, they believe as Anglicans here on, on the, the program as we continue to go forward here. But that's just, it's just, it's very interesting. And, and I want to to say, you know, like that's, it's, it's refreshing to see that. I mean, you, you think of, um, now obviously we have some, some disagreements theologically, but it's it's one of those things again where you don't find a lot of young people these days that care about theology. They care about uh, their church history and history in general. And so uh, you know, yeah, Larry says he's pretty well spoken for sure. Um, but John, we kind of got rolling, and we had a little bit of the technical difficulties, and we didn't get to let you introduce a little bit about yourself and where you kind of came up in you know, you know what religious uh, belief you came up in and what led you to Anglicanism or if you'd always always been in it. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and give you a little bit of time to do that as well. So I want to go ahead and turn that over. You. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to know uh, the Lord and, and the faith in which you, you practice today. All right. Well, I've been, I've grown up Christian my entire life. My whole family has been Christian. Actually, both of my grandparents on my mom and dad's side, they were both Anglican priests. And so not only the Christian faith, but also the specific Anglican denominational faith has been passed on down to me. But my family is from both Nigeria and the Bahamas. So the Anglicanism that they practice there is much more conservative and you know traditional, not like the Episcopal Church here. But of course, growing up in America, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. And I also went to Catholic school my entire life. So I mentioned that Anglicanism is the via media between like Catholicism and like reformed Protestantism. But I sort of only had the Catholic perspective of that for my entire life. And there was even a point in which I considered converting to Catholicism. But I want to dive a bit deeper and research more about, you know, Anglicanism, our history, what our true doctrines are and like what we hold to be fast, like what makes us the middle way. 
And with that, I was able to discover a lot more of the Protestant aspects of our faith as well. And I'm still researching, of course, that's why I want to have this discussion as well. But that is what led me to, I would say that I no longer really identify myself as part of the Episcopal Church. I would say that I'm a member of the ACNA, but right here in Toledo, we don't really have an ACNA church. But when I was in Illyria, I was there for the summer for an internship. Um, I went to one in Cleveland. I went to an ACNA church, and that was the first time I'd been to an ACNA church. And yeah, I've just been, especially recently, just learning and reading up on the church history and the faith and what it means to be an Anglican. Mm. Mike, you're on mute. I grew up Presbyterian. Um, so similar, somewhat history, obviously more Geneva, Scotland, and then over. But one thing I went through is we got to kind of go through a catechism class or confirmation class. I know Catholicism does something similar. Um, you know, is this something that you... Anglican or even Episcopalian do uh, here? Yeah. So we have, uh, we view confirmation as a sacrament, just as the Catholics do. We have the same amount of sacraments and they're the same ones that the Catholics do, although we see some of them in a different like level. So we separate, so there's seven sacraments that Catholics and Anglicans share, but we see only two of them as like, you know, the highest of them all, which are baptism and the Eucharist or communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, and the rest we establish as like, we view those two as sacraments that were directly instituted by Jesus in the New Testament. But the other five we view as sacraments that have come about as of like church history, but are not, you know, on the same level as those two. So we do have confirmation. It's not like on the same level as baptism or receiving the Lord's Supper. But yes, so I did have to go through, I did go through confirmation class and I've been confirmed and stuff. So I, I mentioned that, um, you know, I went through confirmation, didn't really care. I didn't care about theology, liberal Presbyterian. Um, so kind of the, my background, but I think that's important, not just in the church, like you had it, but also in the family. And, you know, kind of in our discussion, as you were talking about it, you know, once since Anglicanism, the Church of England, starts with Henry VIII, but that's not when Christianity is on the island. Yeah. Um, I think Constantine's dad may have been one of the first Christians there, if I'm recalling my church history right, um, as you said, early on, 3rd, 4th century. And you know, the importance of tradition. I know that's kind of like in especially Baptist circles kind of shunned on in one sense. Um, but having that connected, you you don't feel like, oh, this is just here and now. You see that Anglican theology has developed throughout the years. The big development with the split with Kramer bringing kind of these reformed ideas in, um, in some of the aspects and just Anglican being important in the reformation where other cities, states, countries are like, Hey, England's saying there's this divide here between the Bishop of Rome and us. And it becomes influential, influential, throughout the reformation and having that, I think, you know, just that you're 19 years old and that's something you consider. I mean, I didn't care about theology when I was 19 cared about calculus. That's, that's <laughs> you know, that's what I was doing. Trying to be an aerospace engineer, rocket scientist, you know, that was, you know, my focus. And join the air uh, force. All right. So. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Stay in five star hotels, but you know, that's just the, um, I think, in this discussion that we can learn from each other is having this connection back to church history. The Catholics do a very good job of it also. 
Um, I think they wrongly tell the story, but they do a job of trying to keep that connection live. Well, I, w- I was going to say, too, when John was talking about how even though it started with uh, King Henry, that it still goes back. They're, they're still looking back further. Right. Mm-hmm. And see, and, and Roman, like you just said, Mike, Roman Catholics do that. We do that as Protestants, too. Like, I mean, even our independent fundamentalist Baptists who do not uh, and we love them. I'm, I'm just saying they do not believe that they come from the Protestant Reformation. They have that little book, Trail of Blood, where they say they take them all the way back to and in joking, you know, John the Baptist. He's the first Baptist. Right. So um, <laughs> but the, the reality is we all say this, this is why. I think when I came into Reformed theology and I went to my first Reformed Baptist church and they were quoting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I think it was the Nicene Creed, and they, and they mention one holy Catholic church, I'm like, whoa, wait, what do you mean, right, Catholic? Because at that time, I was still getting into Reformed theology, and that was a new term for me because I'm only associating Catholic with Roman Catholicism, but yet understanding that. Catholic small C means universal. We're we're a part of this body that goes all the way back, and so every one of our our denominations are going to say we're going to trace back to this this roots with the Reformation. Let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to those 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 beliefs. You know, sola scriptura, not some of the traditions that came in that elevated those traditions over Scripture. But let's get back to the Scriptures. Um, and so I think we would all say that to to a degree. Uh, that there is this, this. I mean, we've been talking about it when we're, we're, we're doing the, the series on the 1689, and we're going through the church, and we're talking about how we're connected universally mm-hmm. to the saints. We're part of one body universally. And there's going to be brothers that are of different denominations that are in there. I do have my issues with Roman Catholicism, um, where I do, and we, we talked about this a little bit um, when, when I was talking to John at the, in downtown Elyria, that I do believe that it's a different gospel. But I mean, we're still going to find there's this history that we're appealing to, to where it's not like we're just this offshoot. We just started our own denomination uh, with these new beliefs. No, we're, we're centering them back on historical beliefs, but the Bible being that final authority. Yeah, and I'd say that sums up the Anglican belief as well. So to get into final points of discussion, you mentioned sacraments. So let's just let's go at it. And let's talk about church structure. How is the Anglican church structure different than, I mean, we're Baptists. We believe the local church is a sole authority. And um, not having a hierarchical idea, but that we can come together as associations for the bigger mission. So kind of how is... Anglicanism kind of set up as a church? So it's set up very similar to what was practiced in the early church, where you saw that there were specific local congregations that had authority in their specific local areas. But when there tended to be a larger dispute of the faith, like we'd see whether you could eat meat, like whether meat was clean or unclean, or like preaching to Gentiles, right? they would call a church council in which the actual apostles would gather and they would sort of debate on those issues. And we see the bishops, right, as part of continuing that episcopacy from the apostles through the laying on of hands. So not that like bishops are necessarily like apostles, but that they sort of retain that apostolic tradition. So the local churches do have specific authority over their you know, local areas, but when there are larger issues with faith, they would call councils, just as they did, like I mentioned, in the New Testament, and then in general, the early church, right? They would call specific church councils that would debate these issues, and ultimately, of course, scripture is supreme, so like, the councils can't declare something that's, you know, contrary to scripture, but things that maybe aren't as clear or specific rights, the councils of bishops have the right to change or add. We have definitions for all that in our uh, book of common prayer as well. It talks about like the powers of the episcopacy and bishops and stuff. 
Well, while he's looking that up, let me try to prevent us from some dead air here. <laughs> but <clears throat> you can continue to look that up. But yeah, I think that's that's one of the things where we we would say we we do that to some degree as Baptists. We we have we believe in the local autonomy of that local church, uh, where there isn't some higher bishop that can, can come in, and even a presbytery where they they can set the the pastor of that church. We as a church have that <clears throat> within the Baptist uh, um, understanding of of the government structure. We have that authority as the church to vote upon who's going to come in and be the pastor. We can interview and, and whatnot. Now, as Mike was saying, we do have associations where we do get together with associations to whereas if there's an issue, we may contact another uh, local church and say, hey, can you help us resolve this situation? We're having an issue here. Could you help us? And that church may come along and say, okay, they may... Um, review the situation, see what's going on, and then give their input. Here's how I believe you should take care of the situation. But they can't say, this is how you have, like, you have to directly do what we tell you. It's, there's still that autonomy there. And so, you know, that's, that's how we, within the, the, the Baptist uh, uh, denominations are understanding reformed and uh, even IFBs, uh, I think would kind of do that too. Independent fundamentalists would do the same. There is associations that they have, but yet there's still that local autonomy, which sounds what, like what you're saying too. It's just uh, you still have a little more, um, I think, structure in your. Uh, well, you're 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 saying there's still that you have that local autonomy as a as a as a local church, right? So, yeah. Well, it's, so what the church has the power to do is to, it says the church hath the authority to ordain, change, and abolish ceremonies or rites of the church ordained only by man's authority so that all things be done to edifying. So the church can't change, you know, the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? And say like, oh, we're not doing that anymore. Or like baptism, like that's a net, like mm -hmm. you can't do that. But specific traditions that, you know, have been created by man, like, the church can then change that because the church and tradition were the ones that instituted that in the first place. So like, for example, with COVID, for example, it would be, it was up to specific bishops of like whatever specific areas, especially looking at like COVID cases and stuff to determine whether church would be remote or like whether they do in person, stuff like that. That's not like, you know, direct doctrinal statements. Um, we have also in our 39 articles, we talk about, um, the it says of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. So like we view, unlike Roman Catholics, we view everything in the Holy Scriptures as what's necessary to be believed, and everything outside of that could be useful and edifying, but it's not, you know, necessary. So that's sort of how we balance like the scripture and tradition, whereas Catholics, you know, I would say hold them up to be like on the same standard. Anglicans, I'd say that tradition is probably down a bit and we recognize that ultimately it was made by man and we do it to edify and to improve the body of Christ, but ultimately it's made by man. And as men make mistakes, right? So there could be errors in tradition as well. So thus, if we catch one of those, the church has, you know, the right to change that and update that. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that you find a lot of Baptists and not so much the reformed side of things, although there may be some, but you find a lot of Baptists that are very hard on tradition is because it's a response to Roman Catholicism. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to recognize that we all have traditions. And like you said, John is we have to be able to look at those traditions and say, okay, this could be a good tradition. It could be something that'd be helpful. It could be useful for us as a body. Um, but if that tradition contradicts scripture, we have to be willing to throw that tradition out the, out the window. And so <clears throat> I think we, we all, if we're honest, wh wherever we are, uh, as far as what denomination we, we walk with, we all have traditions to an extent, you know? Um, and so it's whether or not those traditions are helpful, useful, good, 
um, and they don't contradict scripture or they do. And then again, like I said, then you have to go with scripture. And that is why I think uh, a lot of Baptists have such a hard time because of the abuses that I would say that come from some of the Roman Catholic traditions where they, they do elevate those traditions up above scripture. And so then that's what you see people responding. And it's always like you have, it's like this when you have people responding, sometimes they go so far to the left or to the right with their responses. So they, end, instead yeah. of being balanced, they end up in a ditch on, on either side. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's why yeah. we're the, the middle way. Yeah, there, he's plugging that Anglicanism here. It all, yeah. it all comes back to the middle Just didn't go reform enough in the baptism department. <clears throat> just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, kind of. Um, you know, it's I've obviously being Presbyterian. You know, they have their hierarchical. Um, it's always fascinating to think about how church structure started. As you mentioned, very early in church history, you see this kind of hierarchical aspect. Um, I mentioned it, I think last week on the show, like you have the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Alexandria and the Bishop of Antioch all fighting for um, kind of primacy and the voice with it. Two got conquered. One remained. We can all guess how that happened. What one that remained um, as we, you know, the Roman Catholic church. And it's always the interesting to think about how to consider church structure. And obviously being Baptist, I think a church should have no interference with higher authorities. Um, I think in, you know, obviously we could, um, we're not going to debate it with it, but isn't it interesting to think about you know, the, this is the idea, this idea of church autonomy comes out of people can convinced of the Anglican church and its waywardness or what they perceived waywardness, maybe a better way. Um, and it's, well, then you have when the Presbyterians and under Cromwell, the Baptists flourished then too. And that, that identity. And I think that's a, important because Episcopalians probably more so because of episkopos, which is bishop. Um, in the Greek, that's where we get the, the language from, you know, yeah. have it. But Baptists have always been this free church, no interference with the state. And I think, you know, you mentioned a little bit now here is that you do have, at least in the COE, that the royal family and the queen in particular is the defender of the faith. Um, not like apologetically, but as the nation kind of military, now that's more done with the prime minister now, and it's more of a title, but that's part of her role. Where a Baptist is like, state shouldn't even tell me what to do. And yeah. I think that's, you know, obviously, who's right, who's wrong, we are obviously on a different part of that. But it is interesting to that in the time in which Henry is thinking of these things, the church has complete control over all the states. And as you kind of mentioned, and as Ricky, you don't see the Anglicans going all the way to the Baptist way. I think the Baptists are kind of pushed there in light of their thing. You know, as they're really thinking and struggling these, um, you know, ideas. So it's always, again, I find it fascinating to kind of study, you know, these ideas and to, to think about them. And just how even different Methodists, which come out of the Anglican communion, has a completely different setup in which churches don't even have a choice of their pastor. It's selected by the people above them. Yeah. I would say in regards to like the um, stately control. So like the queen of England doesn't get to like make doctrines of, yeah. you know, the Anglican faith, like, and specific 
laws or rules that are passed in England don't necessarily reflect on Anglicanism. So like, for example, gay marriage is legal in England, but it's not legal in Anglicanism. The Episcopals would disagree with that. But in general, in the Anglican communion, it's not, you know, it's not a right that's performed. Um, and we'd also argue that the idea of like a monarch or some sort of like country reigning person having sort of a guiding role in the church is also a historical one, of course, the most notably being Constantine. And a lot of like all of the church, early church councils that every Christian denomination to be, you know, an Orthodox Christian accepts were all called by like either emperors or like, for example, um, the one that de declares that Jesus is both fully man and fully God, or like the doctrine of the Trinity, or like the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea, like all of those were called by emperors or some sort of like, you know, stately leaders, and they called the bishops together, and the bishops were the ones that discussed, but the emperors called those meetings because there was such a discord within the country, and, you know, they did it not just for harmony within the church, but also for harmony within the state. But even though they called the councils, it doesn't mean that the emperors themselves had any, like, proclamation. Like, it wasn't Constantine that, you know, made all of these doctrines, but even if he was the one that called some of those councils. When you talk when you talk to atheists or um, those who really don't understand uh, church history, they sure seem to think that he did. <laughs> yeah. It was all Constantine. Yeah. So, and I think there's you know, a healthy pushback in that Acts 15, you mentioned it. You don't see authority or the state being involved. I would, I mean, that's one thing. Obviously, we can debate that later. But, you know, how do these things work out um, with it? I would, I mean, I think naturally... This is my view, and this is obviously reflective of probably what I've been taught, is that the Episcopal way is most natural in course of time. We see that within governments, this kind of hierarchical structure. Um, although it does seem, at least through the travels of Acts, that the apostles while leaned on for the importance of their training or their learned what they've been gifted by the spirit to speak, don't seem to have authority per se over. I think just thinking about Paul writing to Romans saying his work of laying the foundation in the area he's at is done and he seeks to go other places. He doesn't seem to have this kind of, authority over these churches and maybe that's his role as a church planner and an apostle i'm um, obviously in church kind of how the bible writes history we move away from paul and the 12 to now P or peter and the 12 to now paul and his exodus out with it though he still is in communication with churches and as an apostle, he has some sort of authority over them. Um, but I also, this comes in translating, that I think bishop and pastor are synonymous um, in how the, and how the New Testament talks about the leadership of the church. And that's the view. With it. Yeah. Like, that's the view, I'd say, with an Anglicanism. Like, a bishop isn't, like, you know, super priest. Like, bishops are all priests. And we also believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? but we just recognize that there are specific ministers that are called to initiate a specific office. And we view that specifically as sacraments. So like a lay person can't, or someone who's not a priest can't, you know, administer the Lord's supper in Anglicanism because we have ordained priests for that. And bishops do that too. It's just that bishops take on more of a apostolic role. So whereas like, you were asking about like in the New Testament, like the authority for this sort of stuff. I would say that it comes from the binding and loosing power, which the Catholics also cite. 
but the binding and loosing power that Jesus pronounced specifically on the apostles. And even we see, um, I believe it's in Acts, where Paul is going to a church to preach, and he's concerned that they wouldn't accept him because, you know, he came later than the Twelve. And it said that the Twelve laid hands on him so that, you know, it couldn't be disputed that he was preaching in line with, you know, not just, like, the Word of God, but, like, their authority as well. So, like, he has the blessing of the Twelve, and that was meant to be a sign to the people that he was preaching in line with the Word of God, and he's not just some outsider that is going to confuse the new Christian faith. So that's where we get the idea of bishops having authority and also the tradition of laying on of hands or apostolic succession. And there's one of the church fathers, St. Irenaeus, he writes in like second, third century that the point of apostolic succession is to ensure a continuation of the truth. Because the idea is that you know, if there's a direct line from the apostles, right? So that means that the people that the apostles lay hands on and the people that those people in turn lay hands on transitively, right? That they will preserve the truth. And if they're not preserving that truth, then there wouldn't be that laying on of hands. And of course, it doesn't mean that, you know, specific individuals can't err or apostatize or speak error. But in general, because of that line of apostolic succession, it is a way of preserving the truth. So I think that that tradition sort of arose in the early church, both in the New Testament and in the early centuries after, as a, like, in terms of, uh, for, like, structure, or maybe structure is not the best word, but as, like, the best way to ensure that the people that should be speaking out about the truth are actually speaking and that, you know, it's actually the truth as opposed to, you know, any random person claiming some sort of preaching power and then, you know, preaching error and misleading people, whether by, you know, on purpose or on accident. And that's why I believe it's James that talks about how teachers will be judged with the higher standard. So the idea of apostolic succession is to ensure that the people that are teaching and that are held to that higher standard have the actual qualifications and authority given to them from that direct line of the truth to, you know, preach, lest they be judged at that higher standard for preaching error. Before um, <clears throat> we go any further, because we're coming down to the end of the program here, and we got a question here for you from one of the listeners. Uh, I'll put this up on the screen, John, if you can see that. <clears throat> Uh, yes, we do honor them as sacraments. Um, what do you mean by, I don't know, what do you mean by to what extent? But again, we see that as, so there's seven sacraments, but there's two that we say are directly instituted by Christ, so baptism and the Eucharist, and the other five are traditional sacraments, right? So matrimony and last rites are considered some of those traditional sacraments that came about from the early church history. So we will have, like, for people that are sick and especially in danger of dying or near death, we will institute the last rites and we'll pray um, for the unction of the sick, right? And we'll pray for their healing and institute the last rites for them. And, of course, there's marriage as well within the church. And we view that as, because marriage is a sacrament and a covenant, we view that as indissolvable. And so divorce is not, you know, permitted within the Anglican church, right, even if it is civilly with the state. It's not permitted within the Anglican Church. The only thing that are within Anglicanisms are annulments, which are the belief that, not that, like, annulments are sort of misconstrued to be like a, a church divorce, but annulments are actually a proclamation that there was no sacramental marriage that happened in the first place. So it's not that you're dissolving a marriage, it's that there was no marriage to begin with. Because in the Anglican Church, of course, believing that uh, following the Protestant tradition of salvation through faith alone, we believe that the sacraments are not works of man, but actually works of God that have to be received through faith, which itself is a gift from God. So all the sacraments have to be received through faith. It's not just, you know, the action that causes magical powers. Like if you just dip someone in water, right, that doesn't automatically make it a baptism. 
because there has to be that reception through faith. Or if you just give someone a piece of bread, it doesn't automatically become the Lord's Supper because there has to be that reception of faith and also, you know, a valid minister that says the words of consecration. So with marriage, an annulment is only allowed if it were proven that, like, you know, they were married under false pretenses. Like maybe you thought your spouse was someone else and you found out they had, like, some fake identity or something. Or, like, you were mentally incapacitated and you didn't, you know, go into the marriage with, like, your own free will because it was impaired by some means and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty similar to the Catholics <clears throat> as well. I think Larry's, Larry's, you're on mute, Mike. Larry's throwing all these questions at us out here, and we're, so, like, down to the last four minutes. Before we continue on, for our audio listen listeners, this was the question he was answering. Do you guys, Anglican, honor last rites in holy matrimony as a sacrament? Um, it was shown on the screen in the video. Just so, so there you go. That's if you're like confused, you can now rewind the the audio and listen to the answers. So the question was about last rites and um, marriage. Larry said he's just curious. There, he's throwing all these out there. One of the things that he he did ask that I think is important to maybe clarify is because you said as in the Protestant understanding, you do believe by justification by faith alone that man is not saved by the keeping of these sacraments i think that's what you're saying right because this is what larry is asking here so do you receive do you do you have to receive all seven sacraments to go to heaven and i think that's where he was trying to get down to uh the majority of a lot of these questions that he's he's asking so i'll let you answer that and then we're down to the last uh you know closing statements so you can answer that john and then any Thing you would like to share with us before we, we close out the program, go ahead. All right. So no, you do not have to receive all seven sacraments just as it is in Catholicism because some of the sacraments include, you know, matrimony and obviously not everyone will be married. Some will be last rites and obviously not everyone will be in a position before they die to receive the last rites. And also another one of them is holy orders and not every Anglican is expected to be a priest either. So um, the sacraments of salvation that we have are baptism and Eucharist. But again, because we believe in salvation through faith alone, we view baptism and the Eucharist as a work of God, not a work of man. So it's not the, basically baptism is God's putting grace on the person as opposed to, you know, the person doing any action that, you know, gets grace from God. And ultimately, baptism, if you look at the sign of going down the water and then coming up, it's symbolizing Jesus' dying and resurrection. So it's ultimately the work of Jesus that accomplishes the baptism and gives that grace. And the same thing with the Eucharist. It's literally Christ giving his body to us, not physically as the Catholics believe, but in a sort of spiritual and sacramental way. We receive it heavenly through faith. All right. All uh... right. Mike, any any last thoughts before we close this program out? You know, I'm glad John was able to come talk to him. It's always interesting. I always enjoy, you know, learning about um, the different denominations, thinking through their theology. Obviously, I'm a Baptist because I think Baptists, Reformed Baptists, is the proper understanding of the scriptures. Obviously, John disagrees with me. Um, but as he's mentioned, we both believe in the gospel. We're saved by faith, by the grace of God. We believe in the holy inspiration of scriptures. And we can discuss these things civilly without calling for the execution of heretics um, on each other. And you know, this is obviously always enlightening to speak in these ways and to reconsider held convictions. Yeah. And, John, I want to thank you for coming on the program as well. Uh, appreciated having you, having you come on. It was enjoyable to, to have these. And like Mike said, to really think through these things, because even if we disagree on some theological points, it helps us to think through Okay, let's hold. 
this in scripture and then let's examine it because iron sharpens iron and we want to ultimately glorify God with our working out the theology in which we hold to. So, you know, good uh, orthodoxy is going to produce good orthopraxy. And so we want to be able to do those things and have these dialogues where we can discuss some dif- some of the differences and learn from one another. And, uh, and I learned a lot more about Anglican, uh, the Anglican faith tonight. Um, <clears throat> so I thank you for that. Any last thoughts, words from you, John, and then we will close it out. Yeah, I just want to thank you all for having me, of course. I always love the conversation. And I, like I said, I'm interested in learning more as well on the Reformed faith and the more Protestant views of being the middle way. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have to have you back on again and we can actually talk a little bit more uh, some of the theology. But that's been G220 Radio for tonight. I hope you enjoyed the program. Until next time, God bless and good night.